0: Brilliant. We're going to turn to God's Word now. So if you have a Bible, do turn up uh, Mark chapter 4. And Caroline's going to read to us. Thank you.
1: Uh, You can see from the screen that we're going to be in three different areas. So it may be worth uh, finding the final one, which is chapter 14, verses 12 to 21. And putting your finger in that. And then uh, turn to Mark 4. We'll do 1 to 8, and then 18 to 19. Mark 4. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that had gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat on it out in the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, listen, a father went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So we move to chapter 13. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready, make preparation for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips the bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Caroline, very much. Well do um, turn back to Mark chapter 4 and perhaps keep a finger in chapter 14. Um, we're going to come back to that shortly. Uh, but Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's really ask for his help that the words that we learn in this familiar parable would sink deep into our hearts this morning. Heavenly Father, my prayer this morning for each of us is very simple. That it's your voice would stick in our hearts and minds. That we'd hear you and you would convict us and you would point us to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And I pray this in his special name. Amen. I think God's got a great sense of humor. Um, Yesterday we went up the mountains, a group of guys. You had lovely sunshine here. We didn't have so much sunshine. Uh, One of the groups that went on a bit further got really wet. Uh, Great day, a little bit of risk involved. um, But actually the most dangerous bit of the day for me was coming down, uh, being at the car park, about to get in the minibus, coming home. And uh, I was talking to Pete and I nearly choked on an apple seed. Um, But I think God's got a sense of humor because that's the exact subject that we're speaking about this morning, choking. Choking. Uh, So obviously it was his way of saying, I kept you safe uh, and uh, you need to keep your eyes on me as as you think about choking on Sunday morning. Uh, But we're looking at the third of the four soils in the parable of the sower, this really familiar parable that helps us to engage with listening to the word of God. I made the point uh, four weeks ago, quite stressed it, that the single most important thing that you and I can do in our lives is listen to the voice of God. Uh, and Doug just shared that, didn't he? One of the things that's enduring, that's eternal, is the word of God. That's why it's so important that we listen to his voice. And uh, When you come, uh, Steph and I have been in Long Crendon just over a year now. Uh, when you come to a new place, there's lots of things um, which don't play in your favour. You're new, you're having to learn, all sorts of things. Uh, we're still getting to know many people in the church, hearing your stories, getting to know each of you. Uh, it's a great joy doing that, but it takes time. But perhaps one of the advantages of coming into a new place with fresh eyes is that you see things a bit differently to others who may have been here a long, long time. Here's just one observation that I've observed coming to live in this community, as opposed to the community I used to live in, in Bedford, and it's this. I've been amazed at the number of people in the surrounding area where you're in conversation, and the conversation very quickly turns to talking about homes, about jobs and wealth, and about holidays. It's Just an observation. But I think that that shows us that this particular passage is hugely important for all of us. Because we easily forget the kind of amazing place that we live, the affluence we live amongst. And so easily we can forget because we become used to all that's around us. And I've just been amazed coming to a new environment that that's one of the major topics of conversation. And I found myself caught out talking about these things more than I ever used to as well. Remember, have you, as we've looked at the parable, I don't know if you've noticed that there's the three soils, the seed that falls on the path, snatched away by the birds, the seed that falls on shallow soil, it springs up, but then it withers quickly under the sun. Today, the seed that falls amongst thorns, but it gets choked and it can't be fruitful. I don't know if you notice there's a progression there. The first week, the seed was there, but was snatched away straight away. Uh, really symbolic of the person who's indifferent towards God, hard-hearted, doesn't want to hear, doesn't want to know. Then last week when Neil was looking at the shallow soil, I don't know if you noticed in verse 16 of chapter 4, it's not something he particularly touched on, but it speaks about those who receive the word with joy. It's not that the seed doesn't grow in the shallow soil, indeed it grows very quickly, it springs up, but it doesn't have roots, and if you remember last week he held up two different plants, one had a very long root, one had a very weak root, and he was illustrating the danger if we don't have deep roots in the word of God and in the person of Jesus. And this week the progression comes even further because, again, I suspect that this seed grew up. It was probably quite fruitful. But the seed wasn't able to be fruitful ultimately because it was choked. So there's a progression from not caring at all about the word of God, not listening to his voice, to caring but soon giving up, to this week probably loving God, being interested in what he has to say. I suspect that the uh, parable of Uh, the soil here where the seed is choked probably represents the person who even understands the word of God, even approves of it. People whose conscience says yes, but it never really changes anything. Can you just flick on? I don't think this is working today, so if you could just flick through. There we go, thanks. Perhaps you're a bit like Peter Pan, the, the little boy who never wanted to grow up. Often in our Christian lives, we never really grow up. And part of the reason could be that we get choked a bit like the seed in this story. But the most significant thing, though all the soils are different, the seed that falls on the path, the seed that falls on the shallow soil, the seed this week that gets choked by thorns, one thing that cuts through all of them is that they're all unfruitful. Which will be in stark contrast to next week when we look at the good soil that is fruitful. Thanks, uh, Norman. You all will have um, comfort food. You'll know what your comfort food is. Uh, Growing up, my comfort food was marmite on toast, eggs and bacon. If I ever went on a mountain trip, like you've just seen, I always had that cooked. If I played a rugby match, uh, or it was my birthday, my mum would always cook it for me. Now I want to tell you a story about when I first remember having my comfort food. Uh, We were sitting down, it was my birthday, I was six years old, I remember exactly where I was. And as I was eating my bacon, I remember turning a funny shade of white, and I could not breathe at all. I was choking. And I remember going up to my mum, I was sitting here, my mum was here, and I tugged on her arm. I couldn't say anything. I really thought I was going to die. My dad was sitting here, and in an instant, I remember he rushed up to me, probably not the conventional way of dealing with choking, but he picked me upside down and hung me above the sink. The adrenaline surge was such that he could do that. And out came the bacon. And I remember spluttering over this bacon and trying to breathe again, and I realised I'd live on. And I remember a few moments later when I calmed down, dad turned to me and said, Mark, What was wrong with that bacon? And I was sort of leaning over the sink like this, drooling and feeling really sorry for myself. And I said, I remember exactly, I go, it's really fatty. And he looked at me and goes, no Mark, that was four pieces. (laughs) I hadn't cut the bacon, I just attempted to scoff four bits of back bacon into my mouth, no doubt I was choking well that is the story we're looking at today it's all about choking and as you see on the screen I want to look at this passage and just focus on verse 19 because the writer gives us Jesus as he speaks gives us three causes of us being choked and it's really important we spend some time on each of them so here's the first one the worries of this life sure each of us will have significant pressures in our life that cause us at different times to worry it can be a kind of natural reaction but as one person has said worry is a bit like a rocking chair it will keep you occupied but it will get you nowhere here's two questions for you to reflect on first one is this how much time do you spend worrying and how much of that worry actually materializes Let's have a think about that. And here's a second question. What is the opportunity cost of worrying? Or to put it another way, what do you miss out on or lose out on when you worry? Here are a few ideas for you. I had a conversation with someone in the church this week and uh, they brought this to my attention. I think they're really It's really true. One of the things that happens when we worry in life is we lose the joy in the moment. So often we're so concerned about what if, the future, things I can't control, that we just miss all these amazing things that God blesses us with now. I was just reflecting on that comment by the person in the church, and I think that's true in my life. One of the costs of worry is you lose out on joy now. Second one is... You lose out on the opportunity of trusting God in the moment, trusting God's control. I don't know if you noticed, but a little later on, just after our parable of the sower, the end of chapter four, what is the story? That really familiar story we all learned when we were children. It's Jesus calming the storm, and Jesus is out on the boat on the Lake Galilee. He's asleep, he's in complete control, and the disciples wake him because the waves are breaking over the boat. But they forget who's in the boat with them. The great irony of that story is that the safest place in the whole world is on that boat. But they say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And it's in that moment that their worry stops them trusting in his control. Join the moment, trusting God's control. Last one, worry stops you listening. Worry can stop you listening to the voice of God. You know what it's like when you wake up in the morning and the adrenaline kicks in and suddenly you rush into the day and all the worries start bombarding you. All the things you've got to do, all the things you failed to do yesterday. It can be like that because the world seems to ever be speeding up. The opportunities that are presented before us are coming more and more. But so often worry can stop us from listening to the voice of God. And what it does is it ends up choking us Because those few minutes, those precious few minutes at the beginning of the morning, we could snatch to listen to God, to slow down and reflect. This is your God. This is your day, God. What do you want to do in my life today? How do you want me to serve you today? That all just gets swept aside because we're rushing around. Next thing, next opportunity, worry, worry, worry. It's something that affects all of us, and yet it's a very deep-rooted problem. People often talk about listening to God, and people mean all sorts of different things by that. I suspect that very, um, very infrequently it means hearing this kind of audible voice from God. Uh, when you grow up, you're probably taught by your parents, we listen to God through his words in the Bible, and we speak to God in prayer. Now that is true, is what I would teach my children. But praying, speaking to God in prayer, is not just a monologue where I speak at God, and he monologue speaks down to me as I read his word. Prayer is also a conversation in the sense that As I slow down as I pray and I have a chance to reflect on the truths of who God is, as I allow his word and the the things about his character to shape my life, in that sense I'm listening to his voice. I'm giving him space and time to remind me of things, to rebuke me, to challenge me, to encourage me. If prayer just becomes a list of things I reel off and then rush into my day, I'm not going to hear his voice. And that interaction between hearing the voice of God and speaking to him and listening to him in prayer is hugely important for all of our growth as Christians. Well, there's the first one, the worries of this life. One of the big things that stops us listening and chokes us. The second one, which perhaps will challenge many of us, is the deceitfulness of wealth. Uh, that, that phrase that's been translated, the deceitfulness of wealth, could always be, also be translated, the lure of wealth. Uh, when Steph and I were on holiday in Norfolk, um, we went out to have fish and chips on um, a quayside one evening, and there were loads of children there, crabbing. I don't know if you've ever been crabbing, it's something we did on holiday in Cornwall growing up every year. And the children are there, and they've got their string and their hook, and on the end of the hook is a bit of bacon or some old fish from the um, the fish shop. And they lure the fish, or the bit of bacon, into the water, and the crab latches on, thinking it's got an early tea. But what it is, it's a lure, isn't it? It's trying to attract the crab onto the bait, and then slowly you pull the crab up and place it in your bucket. That's how crabbing works. Well, wealth can be quite deceptive a bit like the little boys playing on the quayside who are deceiving the crabs thinking that the crabs were actually going to have dinner when actually the crabs were for dinner wealth can be very deceiving here's a few reasons why one of the problems with wealth is it can give us a massive false sense of security I made that observation at the beginning that one of the things I recognize in this community is that people often rely on their wealth. Why? Because wealth can buy, to a certain degree, control, can't it? I can pay for people to do things in my life, to arrange my life, to keep it nice and controlled. I can pay for people to help me. But if you notice on the screen there, Jesus tells a very important story in Luke chapter 16 where he teaches that money is probably the single biggest competitor with God for human affection. It's astonishing how much Jesus speaks about money and there has to be a good reason for that. He says here, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money are you okay you cannot serve both God and money just have a click on in the next slide notice how the story continues the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus it's almost like they're challenging him and challenging him back saying you can't serve God and money and they're going well we can look at us we keep all the commandments we're serving God we also love our money Jesus says no 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 You can't have two masters. And it's the deceitfulness of wealth that often makes money something that gives us a very dangerous false sense of security. Linked to that, one of the dangers is probably self-indulgence. It's true, God gives us every good thing to enjoy. Everything we enjoy, our holidays, our homes, nice food, they're all good things and we should enjoy them. But... It's not right as a Christian to be self-indulgent and just because I necessarily have means to do X, Y and Z it's not always right that I do X, Y and Z. Just have a look at this verse that comes up from the book of Deuteronomy. God speaks to the people who keep forgetting him and he says this, but remember the Lord your God it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Sometimes I meet people who their whole life for them has been about earning as much money so they can have a lovely retirement. Now everyone has a choice about how you spend your life, how you spend your money. But the significant thing is, often people who have lived like that completely forget that God is the one who's blessed them with the ability to earn money, the stamina to work hard, the opportunities that have been presented before them. Because money is a God-given gift. And if you have loads of it, or a little amount of it, it's still a gift. But it's a responsibility for all of us. How do I use the gift that God has given me? God is the one who gives us the ability to earn our money, which means every penny I earn is his. How can I use it to honour him? Sure, sometimes it will be to have a lovely holiday, have a lovely meal with friends, buy a new car. Of course it will be that. But sometimes it won't be that. And it's worth thinking for yourself, how do you use money? Because there's a real danger that the deceitfulness of wealth can end up choking us. You think about what money can do. You can buy a certain lifestyle with money, can't you? But then once you're at this lifestyle, what's got to happen? You've got to keep funding it. And as you reach this lifestyle, all that happens is you meet more people who've got a bit more than you, and you want to chase after them, and them, and them, and it never stops. Wealth is deceitful. That is why Jesus speaks about it. It's true, isn't it, that we're never actually satisfied. If anyone asks you um, how much money you have, you're probably going to say, well, a little bit more would be nice. But it wouldn't matter if you are a multi-millionaire or you had very little money, you would always say, a little bit more would be very nice. You just flick on. I uh, read this book um, on the uh, coach up to um, Snowdonia on Friday. A really interesting book. I don't know if you've ever read it or come across it. Uh, not a Christian book at all, but this guy, I think, has a brilliant diagnosis of Western culture of materialism and he calls um, this problem affluenza a bit like influenza the flu that you and I can sometimes have the money and materialism and wealth that we uh, have opportunity to earn and many of us will enjoy is eating us alive I don't agree with the conclusions he makes in the book because they're completely godless but the diagnosis of our culture I think is absolutely spot on it's a fascinating book and he says that we will never be satisfied He also says this, and I thought this was very interesting. He said that money and how you spend it is probably the most revealing thing about you. Your money and how you spend it is probably the most revealing thing about you. And as Christians, one of the responsibilities we have is to use the wealth, however however relative that is to you, but to use it to honour God and point people to him. That's a great responsibility. It should be a great joy. But so often it's a great danger. And last little uh, thing to think about here under this deceitfulness of wealth. One of the dangers of wealth is it causes us to love the gift more than the giver. You know the story of the rich young man? This rich young man was very earnest. He came up to Jesus and said, Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, here's a man who clearly listens to Jesus. He calls him a teacher. And here's an earnest man. He says, what must I do? I want to be with you in heaven. But Jesus knows and diagnoses his heart and says, but friend, there's one thing that you lack. It may not be the thing that you lack, but it's the one thing that this man lacked. He said, go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And it says in Mark chapter 10, verse 22, at this the young man's face fell because he had great wealth. His wealth ultimately wasn't his problem. The problem was his wealth was his God. And he wasn't prepared to give it up to invest in his relationship with Jesus. There's lots of challenges there. But I think we need to be challenged, each of us. That money is very deceitful and it could be something that's choking you, stopping you from being productive, fruitful Christians. I want to challenge you to think about how you use the gift of money to be a blessing to others. And the third thing, if you look back down to verse 19, this one is a little vaguer, it's not quite so precise, but Jesus says one of the other things that chokes us is the desire for other things. How many of you would say deep in your heart that your life feels very cluttered, just busy? Just busy? Sometimes you can't even put your finger on it, but there's just stuff there all the time, isn't there? There's too much going on, too many responsibilities, too many balls to juggle. I think, in some sense, that conveys what Jesus means here this desire for other things. As I said earlier, we are living in a culture where we probably have more opportunity than we've ever had. But what does opportunity bring? It often brings discontent, because I'm always looking for the next best thing, it often brings distraction. Because I'm chasing after the next thing. The world and time is controlling me rather than time being a gift that God has given me. But I want you to notice two words in verse 19 I think are really powerful. Do you see it there? The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things come in. That's the significant thing I want you to think about. Worry is always out there, isn't it? It's always there. We've always got opportunity to worry wealth is always there in front of us we've always got opportunities to be deceived by it other stuff is always there in front of us easy to choke us but the significant thing is do we allow those things to come in? do we allow them to influence us to control us, to change us? Uh, I know where Steph's secret stash of chocolate is at home Now, chocolate's fine in small amounts, but if I was to eat huge amounts of chocolate, it wouldn't be good for me. If I consumed a lot of it, it would do me great damage. It's not hugely dangerous being there. What's dangerous is when I take the chocolate in, when I consume it, kilo by kilo, and it gets worse and worse. Friends, you need to be aware, I need to be aware, that worries, deceitfulness of wealth, other things are always there, but will we let them come in? Will we let them influence us? Will we let them control us? Because what happens when you eat too much? You end up choking. And when these other things come into our life and begin to shape us on the inside, we end up choking. And again, there was opportunity for seed to fall probably on reasonable soil. But what was it that choked the soil and stopped it being fruitful? It was the thorns. It was the thistles. And the seed did not bear any fruit. You see it there in verse 19. It made it unfruitful. The striking thing is that the problem wasn't with the seed and possibly wasn't even with the soil. The problem was with the things in the soil that distracted the seed and stopped it being fruitful. As you reflect on those three things that can stop you from listening to the word of God to bear, bear fruit as a Christian. I want you to turn please to Mark chapter 14. A little further on, another familiar story the scene is uh, Jesus' last meal with his disciples, the last supper and as Caroline was reading uh, it came across really clearly, didn't it that there is Jesus and he sends them off to prepare the Passover they find this room upstairs, furnished and ready he sends them in and so the disciples go there, verse 16 to get ready for the Passover when evening comes, verse 17 Jesus arrives with the twelve while they're reclining at the table eating he said truly, I tell you One of you will betray me. One who is eating here with me. You can imagine the disciples, can't you? These guys who followed him everywhere. Many of them have given up everything to follow him. And they're sitting around this table and Jesus has just laid this killer blow and they're looking around at each other. What, me? You? No. You? Surely not I. That's what they say. Surely not I. Remember I said in the very first week these different soils they're not there to say there are different ways of responding to Jesus but if you're a Christian you're going to be the good soil of course you are these soils are here to ask you how are you listening what is choking you what is stopping you from being fruitful as a follower of Jesus and so just as the disciples say surely not I perhaps you and I are thinking in our hearts surely not me surely I won't be choked I won't be distracted Surely I'll be one of those Christians who does bear fruit. We think about Judas. Perhaps he was choked by the worries of this life. We know that some of the other disciples gave up everything to follow him. What did Jesus ask Judas to give up to follow him? Perhaps the cost was just too great. So he betrays Jesus. It could be in the deceitfulness of wealth. Indeed, we read in Matthew's Gospel that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver... Later, he's absolutely gutted at the mistake he's made. He hangs himself. But in that split second, 30 pieces of silver were more attractive to him than a relationship with his God. It could have been a desire for other things. I don't know if you noticed, just a couple of verses before where Caroline read. Verse 10, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. The thing that strikes me about that, it was ridiculously easy for Judas to betray him. It didn't take much. But some combination of the worries of this life, perhaps the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, came in and choked Judas. And he betrayed Jesus, and his life failed to be fruitful. I want to end by you putting your seat around that table. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Now it may well not be you, I pray it will not be. It may well not be me, I pray it will not be. But it could be. And so when we look at this Judas story, it's not there for us to point the finger at Judas. Look at the mistake he made. It's there as a mirror warning us, don't you make that same mistake. That's a pretty strong challenge, but we each need that because Jesus tells this parable for a reason. He doesn't want us to be choked. He wants us, as we're going to examine next week, to bear fruit. That is the source of all joy. That is the source and purpose for our lives. And when we stay connected to him, that is possible. But I don't want to leave you with a challenge. I actually want to leave you with an encouragement. Straight after Jesus warns the disciples, verse 21... And he says this, strong warning, isn't it? Woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It will be better for him if he had not been born. Notice how the next verse begins. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take. This is my body. I don't want to be a person who is choked by the worries of this life I don't want to be a person who is choked by the deceitfulness of wealth I don't want to be a person who is deceived by other things and I won't be if I stop those things coming in by the grace of God as his spirit works in my life and instead of letting those things come in I let the gospel come in Where Jesus breaks the bread and says, take, eat, this is my body. What he's doing is he's offering us something which we have to receive. Each of the disciples around that table would have had to receive that bread. And said, yes, your body is going to be broken for me. And rather than letting these other things come in and influence our life, the encouragement to us, as we see in the very next verse, was to instead listen to Jesus, that invitation to life. And let the gospel come in. The gospel that offers forgiveness for each and every time I am deceived by wealth, every time I'm distracted by other things, every time I worry and I get choked. Let the gospel come in that Jesus might forgive you. But also let the gospel come in so that the person of Jesus becomes more special to you. I don't want to be deceived by these things, and I won't be if he stays number one in my life. The very first week I said that these parables acted a bit like a spiritual sift, sifting those who genuinely want to listen and respond to the voice of God and those who don't. And that is why this last verse was hugely important. Jesus, remember he said in chapter 4, consider carefully what you hear when he speaks. With the measure you use,
1: it will be measured to you. Amen.